what is so difficult about putting a mask on? I mean, surely everyone's seen a superhero movie. Surely everyone knows what the Winter Soldier looks like. So be like a Winter Soldier, yeah. except without the metal arm. Hello and welcome to The Film File. A year old. Yes, it's been a year since we started this little side project, this little attempt to do something with our time with appreciation of film for film geeks, by film geeks, and here we are, a year on. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. But this whole thing has basically become our, our it's become our lifeline during this past few months. This has become our, our positive focus in the negative environments that we live in. Well, that's right. I've, not, I've actually not seen you since March. Yeah. And then we started doing them online and we started doing it um, over the Tinterweb. And, uh, and we decided at that point, to keep the same, we were going to do it weekly. And that's, we pretty much held to that. I think that uh, not always hit, hit the same day to record on, but we have kept it going. And, and you're right. I, I, I had, uh, I went out for a coffee, which is one of the few things that I've really, really missed. Going to the cinema, coffee and gigging, all that alone working, going out on walks, being on an airplane, forget all that. But <laughs> I've got other pictures. Anyway, I could keep going. But this, you're right, this has been a lifeline. This has kind of held us together. It's its kept us active. It's, in some of the darker days, it's given me something to look forward to. Um, yeah. And it's been a heck of a good year. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad we did it. Yeah, I mean, even though there's, it's not been a lot of new films, I mean, we've only covered a few new films over the past few months. But going back and revisiting all the films that have meant something to us in one way or another yeah. has been a nice way to like keep that keep that positivity going around it absolutely we might we could have just delved into every film that was getting released on netflix each week and just talked about some absolute dross because some of it has been pretty bad yeah uh, but that would have just put us on downers and make us not want to continue doing this like through all that like you know, you know if everything's horrible outside in the world do you really want to spend an hour to an hour and 15 talking about more horrible stuff i i agree let, let's agree. keep it positive. Let's keep it going. And obviously, what once like the big releases start coming back out again at the cinemas, we are definitely going to be talking about them. We've got Tenet coming up in a couple of weeks. <gasps> Yay! Yeah, uh, so, you know, th there is some positivity on the way. We might not like the films, but the positivity of it being something out there again, something big, something on the big screen, that's the positivity that we need at this point in time. And Absolutely. we're getting close to it. Yeah, I because mean... Because we are, we are ready to open. About opening, yeah. So... The cinema chain you work for, uh, The Light, uh, we're not the BBC, so we can mention it. I do, you know, because I'm so BBC orientated with what I do, I keep going, oh, we can't say it. Oh, we can, because we're not on the BBC. We can yeah. say that. So, yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got some positive news about cinemas reopening. Give us that and then we'll get into the news. So the, the cinema chains that hadn't opened in the UK are more or less all ramping up because we're tenants opening it's obvious that this is the time for the ones who were holding back. So Cineworld were holding back and they've recently reopened two weeks ago as the build up towards it. The Odeon near, near us has had remained closed, but is now going on sale. View still doesn't have any tickets on sale, but we suspect they're doing an announcement soon. And we've decided that now's the time for us to open. So we're going to be opening next Friday, the 21st, which gives us a nice five days worth of getting used to things again in this new environment of cinema that we'll be working in before Tenet hits. Because the new environment is 
measures for controlling the flow of people around the building, limited capacities, limited show times, uh, masks being worn at all times, different ways of buying products. So you, you order your food at a till, you then go and wait until your number comes up on a screen to go and collect, similar to like how McDonald's and all that works. Okay. It's basically to restrict the, like, to, to stop the people stood for a couple of minutes at a time in front of one member of staff and keeping the contact down to a minimum. So there's loads of measures in place that are making it a more safe environment, as well as like sanitization stations all around the building. What about seating? Are you, uh, are you having to socially distance with seating or? Yeah, um, we're encouraging people to book online and how the seating works. Say, for example, you're going on your own. You've booked one seat. No, no tickets will be allowed to be sold for the two seats next year. It sounds like heaven to me. <laughs> That's absolutely perfect. If you book with two friends, so there's three of you, you put those three in, and then no one will be able to sit for the two seats next to them. So it automatically puts the spacing in and stops people from being able to book around them. And on the tills-wise, we'll not be able to... If we try to override it, it will prompt up saying, no, um, we can't put this. Are you sure you wish to continue? Just as a measure to make sure that no one accidentally goes boom and puts one on there so it's automatically placing the gaps between the seats i know some chains have done it where they've locked out seats so you look at their seating plans when a new film's on it's like it's like a checkerboard uh, but with our one it looks like you can buy anything but as soon as you start trying to buy something next to someone it won't let you okay so it's a it's a really good measure to make sure that there's a bit of distancing there and uh, to keep people we, we the important thing is we want our guests, because we always refer to them, we're, they're not customers to us, the guests. We've always referred to them as guests. We want our guests to feel to feel safe, to feel like they can take the mind off the world and just immerse into a film without any worries of anyone like leaning across them and sweating over them and, you know, the kind of thing that you get in a close, tight cinemas. We have good, like, you know yourself from coming to visit our cinema. Uh, the leg room in our, our cinema is really good. The seats are wide and spacious. So, you know, there's a lot of basic distancing going on anyway. It's not like... You're not sat on top of each other. I'm not I'm not going to name drop the cinema chain, but there's one cinema in Sheffield that literally, if you're over five foot one, you have your knees up on your chest as you're sat watching a film because the leg room is that tight. But with us, you can literally stretch out. So... It's going to be a comfortable environment. It is going to be a different environment. And some customers might find it a bit strange because we've always been the social cinema. We've always been the ones who, like, as soon as you walk in, we're, we're like, oh, I've not seen you since, like, well, what did you watch last week? And we're barely interacting with you. We've got to cut back on that because the interaction has got to be kept to a minimum. But it's, it sounds like what you're doing is you're doing the sensible route. And, and to be yeah. perfectly honest, I mean, there's always going to be a-holes out there. But... Most people I've seen have been very good at following masking. I mean, we've not had sort of the kickback that we've had in the States. Yeah, you, you're going to get 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 your some some dude or dudette who, who's not into it and kicks off about yeah. it. But I, quite frankly, from what I've witnessed so far, that seems to be in a minimum. Uh, and I think most people have uh, have gone along with it. I, I for one, I, I can't wait to get back into a cinema. Yeah. And to see something fresh and new on a big screen, no matter what we've what we've had chance to watch during the last few months, it's not the same. And looking forward to it. So, also on today's show, as well as uh, the news, we're going to be talking about Andy's classic film miss and 
this week it's the Oliver Stone film starring Michael Douglas, Wall Street. We're doing a deep dive. We're turning up to number 11 with This is Spinal Tap. But first, as promised, Andy has been trudging through the World Wide Web to bring you the latest in news. But I'm, I'm quickly going to interrupt him by a little Ooh. bit of news, which has just landed as we, while we started recording, Andy. And what is that? What, so what has just landed? What has just landed is a Godzilla museum has just opened in Japan. That's it. I'm on the next flight. <laughs> Very soon they will open phase two, wait for it, that includes a zip line that lets you fly into Godzilla's mouth. Isn't that not just the greatest thing ever? Oh, man. Once all this uh, COVID nonsense is all done and dusted, oh, I am ziplining myself into Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a euphemism for many things, but there you go. I, I don't know if I can afford it, but even if I have to swim my way there, I'm heading over there. <laughs> Fantastic. What else have you got for us, Andy? What is the news? Right. So, first of all, it's happening. It's finally happening. New Mutants is coming out. I wish I could believe you, Andy, because I think that uh, that film is actually cursed. Theatres in the US have been told they can start taking bookings. And one chain in the UK already has tickets on sale for the preview weekend from the 28th in the UK. In the US, the film comes out wide on the 28th. In the UK, it's just going to have a preview weekend, 28th, 29th and 30th. One cinema chain in the UK currently has it on sale. It's happening. It's fa- as soon as that hap- like popped up on their website the other day. I'm not saying who they are because the competition, so I don't want to encourage them. <laughs> I just want to say, I just want to say that you know, if you do go to the light, we will be showing it. So hold off. Um, <laughs> we are really looking for that sponsorship deal from you, like any minute. <laughs> but as soon as it popped up on this Cinema Chain's website, I was like, oh, oh, and I got really excited. Now this is a film that, if you remember, all the way back, I wasn't sold on. I know. I know. Well, I was quite negative back. about the f- the first trailer that dropped made me go, uh, I don't like it. I don't, I, I'm not sure what they're doing. But that was a trailer for when Fox were behind the scenes. Yeah. And then Fox pulled, like said, oh, it needs to be redone, reshoots. It needs to be re-edited. Which we don't happened. like what there is. Blah, 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 blah. Which none of the reshoots ever took place, but the re-editing had kind of got cropped behind the original director's back. And then it was sold to Disney as part of the deal. And then Disney looked at it and went, oh, that's a mess. Uh, uh, you, you, you made this film. Come on, show us the version that you originally you originally had. They saw it, went, wow, this is the one that we want. And that was the point that I got excited because it was like, okay, so they've gone back to the original director's vision because Fox always interfered. On they the had a lot franchise. of notoriety around all of the, the superhero packages. Of, of Whereas just... Disney have always been quite good at like letting the director have his vision with just a bit of guidance. I got excited at that point. And then that trailer dropped earlier this year and I was on, I was in. That was it. And so as it's got closer and closer, with the many delays that have gone on, my anticipation levels have gone through the roof. Once I get to see that film, I can die happy. (laughs) Uh, But for the US, this coming out on the 28th means it'll be the first significant release after reopening because Tenet for the US has been pushed to September. Which has kind of gone against everything that that, uh, Nolan had in place, which had to be a worldwide release. Yeah. To uh, simultaneous UK, Europe, China... Uh, US all at the same time and, uh, and to some extent I'm glad he's seen sense and, and I mentioned yeah. this on last week's show you've got a product sat on a shelf doing nothing it's not making anybody any money it's not yeah I, I also think there's certain zeitgeist with films that they have to be seen at a certain time so I'm, I'm all for the the staggered release a, a little bit blase that that we in the UK have, have got it first but 
I'm just glad it's getting a release. It's a shame for the US that, you know, it's such a tight production that no one even knows what the actual plot is of the film. And so inevitably they're going to get the spoilers when the film drops everywhere in the world. But, you know, maybe vote in a better president and you wouldn't <laughs> be in this, me- in, in this mess. Um, will Nolan's film live up to the level of hype that there is around it? Who knows? But we are all hyped for it. Now, on the subject of Warners with Tenet, Warners themselves have some struggles going on. Okay. They've had the merger with AT&T. And as a result, AT&T have moved to consolidate all the Warner Media operations into one ent- entity and streamline the business, which has resulted in redundancies across the company at all levels and all se- sectors. I know someone personally who was a rep, rep for Warners in the UK who has been made redundant. And it's really sad times that there's a lot of chops getting made. It also means that big changes are going to be in store with the film slate. And CFO John Stevens has suggested that Wonder Woman 84 and Dune may likely delay or even shift to other release platforms, depending on whether Tenet does perform. And so they're sat waiting to see how the worldwide release and the US release of that does before they make the decisions. But we might lose Wonder Woman 84 and Dune from this year, or we might see Wonder Woman 84 take the Christmas slot and Dune move to like May next year. It's as we said every week. This is this is all a work in progress, and uh, we don't know what the situation is going to be. We, you know, as as I keep reading, as we go into sort of the winter months, is that uh, the fear of the second wave? A lot of people said it's going to be kind of September, October time. Uh, fingers crossed, everything. You know, we we work through it, and we can keep going in some semblance of of recovery. But as we know films are going to keep changing there's no point in putting the good money on a certain date anymore until we, we we've got some clarity on it uh, let's hope for the best has to be said that part of me feels um, a bit of anger at how warner's are uh, chopping people i mean even on their comic like dc comics sector they're losing people within there they're chopping people left right and center to save money and at the same time throwing 30 million at a director who claimed for the past two years this film was finished and now has to finish it there's a bit of anger in me at this and i don't even need to mention who that director is because we've already said we're not going to talk about any of his stuff until there's actually proper news so let's quickly move on to another company that has angered people there's a lot of anger in this week's news by the way uh, so that amc and universal deal that we predicted and uh, came true and we talked about it on the last episode well, further details have emerged, and it is exactly how we predicted it. Oh, again? We're it's just exactly too good at this. right down to the a film opens at the cinema, and it, it, the decision can't be made for it to go to video on demand early until at least 10 days have passed. We said the first two weekends, that's 10 days. Yeah. And yeah. Then, they can, then they can decide it's not performing. We're moving it to video demand after the third week. Exactly, exactly how we predicted it. We are so good. <laughs> <laughs> We're wasted. We're wasted just doing this one. Now, this is this is good, kind of good news in a way for the indie theatres because they also said that even when it goes to video on demand, the cinemas can still choose to show it. It won't get pulled from the cinemas completely. And the indie theatres... The indie theatres' argument was that if it's going to be advertised as going on to video on demand on week three, who's going to go watch it yeah. in the cinema? And it's going to kill us. But if it can't get promoted as video on demand until after the second weekend they get the initial business and they also have their crowd at the indie theaters who would rather go to there than watch something on tv anyway 
So they could keep it for week three, four and five if they're still getting a good flow from it. You see, there's a lot of loyalty, though, in, in indie theatres. There's uh, the art theatres that I've, uh, I've attended. There, there's more love for the, for the cinema experience yeah. than necessarily sometimes even the film. I think it's it's uh, art cinemas, and I mean this in the nicest possible way. Do do see themselves as sometimes being a little bit elitist than than um, yeah your, your your mega cinemas, and and that's why they work. They do have that they do have that love of cinema which brings people in, and they want to share it, and they want to they want to talk about it. And I think you know if you you're right, you take the product out too early. I'm not sure if it necessarily will have a huge impact on on art cinemas. Maybe some. But I think yep. there's a loyalty that, that, that multiplexers don't have. Um, AMC have offered that same deal that they've set up to all other studios. Um, and they've been expecting it to become the industry standard down the line and declaring themselves as the saviors. They've single-handedly saved the <laughs> exhibitor. Well, thank you, AMC. Um, other exhibitors are obviously a tad stung and angry that AMC are claiming to have single-handedly saved exhibitors whilst also giving away so much um, control over film distribution. And distributors haven't as of yet said whether they will follow suit. Disney initially said, like we reported a few weeks ago, that they had no intention of following suit, but then they pulled a Mulan on us. Right. So we don't we don't trust anything that Disney is saying at this point in time. Uh, speaking of Disney, they've also confirmed that they will not be releasing any Blu-ray 4K remasters from now on. Okay. And that, sadly, includes all the Fox back catalogue. Because we were looking at a Star Wars 4K re-release yep. with the hope that uh, they would be have the special editions and the original cut. The originals. So all of those people who are also holding hope for the Abyss 4K that James Cameron keeps promising over and over again, tough, it's gone. Well, that's disappointing. Looks like they want to keep this um, UHD as an incentive for their Disney Plus service, even though streaming 4K isn't a patch on true 4K on a disc. It's getting to the stage that, I mean, we've defended Disney in the past. We've many times when people have been negative about Disney's practices, we've gone, it's just people picking on the big guys because people get a bit jealous. And, you know, Disney are very good. But I can't help but think that we're back. We backed the wrong horse because Disney are starting to, they're starting to make some decisions that kind of go against the film experience. Do you think it's, they've become too big? They're too powerful now? I think I think their focus on the Disney Plus service has become a major issue, and that's where all of this is coming from. They want to be able to say that you can get the best quality version of their film through the streaming service. You can't. No matter how good the 4K or even up to 8K ends up being, it won't be a patch on watching the physical version of it because it's not the same bitrate. Absolutely. I totally they, they become far too confident because of how well Disney Plus has launched and that has resulted in them. I'm just going to remind of another win that we had when we were talking about New Mutants going to VOD on Disney+, and there was that fake ad for it that yep. came from Australia. Um, so, again, uh, we were right. It's not going to uh, it's not going to Disney+. Plus. No. Moving on, it, it, what else have you got? Uh, well, yeah, to just round up on like the whole Warner Brothers and Disney, with both of them now turning out to be the bad guys in the world, all my love is now lying with Bloomhouse. Bloomhouse, I have a lot of love for, even when they make a very average film, <laughs> Fantasy Island, I'm looking at you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's still got enough there to like to keep me interested. But when they do a good film, boy, do they do a good film. And they've just released the teaser poster for their upcoming collaboration with Amazon, Welcome to Bloomhouse. Now, this was announced way back in 2016, and it was an anthology 
of eight to ten movies. It's now confirmed that it's eight genre movies. The first four movies will land in Purs in October, with the other four arriving in 2021. And the films which are set for the October, which are featured on the poster, are The Lie, which sees Peter Sarsgaard and Marielle Enos as desperate parents trying to cover up their daughter's killing of her best friend. Black Box, which sees a, a, a guy lose his wife and memory in a car accident and then seeks out experimental treatment, which causes him to actually question his full reality. You've got Evil Eye, which sees uh, Sarita Chowdhury, Sunita Mani and Omar Mascati in a story about a mother convinced that her daughter's boyfriend has a dark connection to her own past. And Nocturne, which Sidney Sweeney discovers a mysterious notebook belonging to a recently deceased classmate and starts to change personality from timid and, and underachieving to outgoing and accomplished and bettering her twin sister. And these land, don't they, in uh, in October on, on Amazon yeah, the, in time for Halloween? Yeah, that's the whole idea behind them doing the October one. They want to give like some Bloomhouse scares for the October season. And the, I mean, I, I love when they tackle horror. I love Bloomhouse. I love how Bloomhouse will spend just three million on a film. They'll keep it low budget and let the creator try to like do what they can. I mean, things like even in recent years, you have action hot like horrors and thrillers like Upgrade, which is on Netflix at the moment. If you've not got around to seeing it, no, actually, it's, it's my weekend view. It's a belter of a film, absolute belter, and that only costs three million. But it looks it, it's very comparable story wise to things like Venom, but it outdoes Venom on a much less budget. It looks amazing, it's creative, uh, it's it's fun, it's energetic, and it's it's gruesome at moments. And let's not forget Invisible Man. Invisible Man blew, blew audiences away early this year and showed what you can do with a low budget and you don't need to spend 80 to 250 million on a film. You can spend less than 10 million and you can just deliver a solid story with some chills, thrills, and some great cast. I totally agree with you. I'm looking forward to these Bloomhouse releases as I'm looking forward to pretty much anything Bloomhouse touches. I, I'm with you on Bloomhouse. Not everything that they uh, they throw out is a, is a hit. Not everything works. But the fact that they, they'll take a chance on, on low-budget filmmakers. And, and from what I gather, this, see, this series that's going to Amazon Prime is all about that. It's giving an opportunity for, yeah. for new talent to, to, to shine through. They, they have an ethos which reminds me in some way, of what Roger Corman used to do, which is, yeah. is, is to make it cheap. Okay, Roger Corman made it dirt cheap, but he made it and he and he always had the opportunity to to bring talent through. And without Roger Corman, you wouldn't have had James Cameron. You wouldn't have Martin Scorsese. You wouldn't have had Jack Nicholson. And and, and that was always, always their intent was to to make interesting movies that, that could, could go out cheaply. And Bloomhouse is sort of, in a way, carrying on that uh, that tradition and and that's what's needed and you know there's always that opportunity for new voices and, and horror always seems to be the right opportunity because i think if you can make a, a decent horror film and, I, and i've said this many times horror shouldn't be 200 million no it needs to be there needs to have a rough edge around it and, and bloomhouse do that that incredibly well so i think with bloomhouse i mean we know the horror stuff but they've also been connected to to some more prestigious, uh, most prestigious projects, which Jason Bloom's uh, produced. Anyway, that's Bloomhouse. Andy, what else? What else is in the news? So Netflix, we're all familiar with the dum when you switch it on or when something starts. You know that that's that little signature sting that they have. Well, it it might be a very recognisable signature sting, 
But when it comes for their more theatrical works and things that they want to showcase on the big screen, it kind of gets lost in between all the other logos by other production companies, which take up to 20 to 30 seconds. So they've crafted a new one. Uh-huh. Have you heard it? I, I haven't. I know the story. I know that it's Hans Zimmer has, has uh, yes. created this. Oh, well, copyright wise, are we allowed to play it? I'm sure we, I'm sure we've mentioned them enough. Let's go for it. Let's pop it in there as a little plug for what it is. So here's the new Hans Zimmer Sting. So it's approximately 16 seconds. It's a it's a more typically Hans Zimmer orchestral like movement kind of thing. It gives it that prestige now. Yeah, because you know you look at I me. Mean, the Marvel films are notorious for like the Marvel <laughs> logo now takes up to about an hour and a half to finish processing on screen. And, and yeah, I know I know it's become a running joke in things like the everything wrong with. It's like 45 seconds of logos. It's like well, at least Netflix can now take 16 seconds of that 45 seconds up. And it, it gives them recognition because it's easy to lose it in amongst all the other logos when you're watching things that they've been involved with on the big screen. I know it doesn't happen often, but I think that going forwards, we might see a lot more of the streaming network stuff going to the big screens. And there's a very good reason for this. There's the, did you, are you aware of the Paramount ruling that was in place? I was not. Explain. Explain the Paramount ruling. It's... It was a ruling that was put in place to stop distributors from owning cinemas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. It's, uh, it was to do with the antitrust law, I think, in the state. Yes. Well, that's been finally scrapped and overruled. So I envision, and this is where we go into prediction phase again, Apple will start to look at owning cinemas. I can see, we already know that Amazon have been seeking it for a while. And I would not be surprised if Netflix starts getting its feet into owning smaller chains or at least having some investment in there to get their film properties onto the screens. Um, Apple, the reason why I think that they'll go for it, they've done a lot of nice first look deals with some directors. The most recent one being Scorsese. He signed a first look deal with them on all of his films. He's got his next piece, which is Killers of the Flower Moon, that we've spoken to a few times. That's set to shoot for the network in February. But he's also set up deals with Leonardo DiCaprio's Appian Way production company. Apple have also tagged Ridley Scott's Scott Free production company for first look deals and Idris Elba's Green Door, as well as A24 have linked with the tech and music giants who are clearly aiming high on the film content. If they're aiming that high with those names, they will want to make sure that they can get a cinema distribution. And I think Apple will invest in cinemas now that those uh, antitrust laws have been scrapped it's a it's an exciting time for like you know for those of us who saw some of the productions that went straight to streaming that were made and didn't get a cinema release there's so many of them that you think would have liked to have seen this on the big screen so it's exciting for that aspect but it's also yet another worrying influx thing behind the scenes for those of us who work within the industry if it has the effect of as uh, clearly it's happened over the last few years that, that the cinema experience has to improve because of interesting competition and what makes that that you know we, we all go to the cinema for different reasons i go because i don't think you what you can share in, in your living room even with the best sound system that you've got and the best screen that you've got is the same as watching on a big screen with 
a, a dozen speakers uh, and sharing that that experience with with other people. I think um, cinema's unique for that. But I think if you know, it's it's if cinemas are going to succeed and carry on, especially after uh, the last few months, then that experience has always got to be improved upon. So if Apple can bring something new to the party that inspires other cinemas to bring something else new to the party, then then I'm kind of all for it. But I do understand and I can see your worries. So it's a strange time we live in and the industry is going to have a lot of changes over the next couple of years. And we will report on them because I will be <laughs> completely embroiled in them. Um, moving on to other news. Remember about three or four episodes ago, when I was like, I think it's about time that we had a Tron 3 film and it should go into production. And we mentioned this and we mentioned a possible director, didn't we? Well, it's it's happening. Right it's got a director attached. <laughs> Garth Davis has been attached to direct. Now, whilst the whole production hasn't been given a full green light, having a director on board to bring his vision to the script that the last script was from Jesse Wigato, and that's likely the starting point for what will eventually be put in, into production. Apparently, Garth Davis aggressively chased this task. He thrust himself upon it, said, I've got an idea for this franchise. I love this franchise. I think we can do this, do this, do this. And it's not expected to be a direct sequel to Legacy. It'll be another film within the Tron framework. Uh, I mean, for those who don't know who Garth Davis is, he gave us uh, Lion and Mary Magdalene. Very different films to what a Tron film will be. Yeah, absolutely. I, not the director I would have put in there. Yeah, but him him wanting to get involved in it, that gives me confidence in he's got a vision. He's got something unique to bring to it. This will be his first major feature. Jared Leto is still on board to star. So that is... Pretty much, I wouldn't be surprised if we get an announcement sometime in the early 2021 for a shooting date because it's been bubbling around in the background for a while. It was put on hold because, well, it was basically canned or plans for the third Tron film when Disney went, we've got Star Wars now, we don't need another sci-fi. Star Wars didn't quite pan out how they wanted it to do. So now they're going back to that well. And why not bring us Tron 3? It'll probably go to Disney+. Plus. It probably won't be a That was what I was just about to ask. Do you do we think it's a Disney Plus project as opposed to? I a, think it'll be. I think it'll experience. be one of their like only on Disney Plus yeah, as too. a sales thing. But we'll finally get it. And speaking of Jared Leto, if you were making a biopic of Andy Warhol, could you think of a more perfect casting decision? Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great choice. Um, I think he would make a, a, a perfect, a perfect Warhol. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, as you mentioned it, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, he's got that. He's got that certain other world yes. that you associate with, with Warhol. A flamboyancy to him as well. I mean, there's no details on the film. We, we All that we know is that in 2016, there was a plan with Terence Winter writing and Michael DeLuca producing that fell through. But this film, new film, it might be adapting from the work that was already done. It might be something completely new. But any film showing an insight into Warhol, the experimental film director and producer and a pop artist of renown, it's a compelling idea. I mean, he's such a fascinating character study, Warhol. And Leto, it, it, that just draws me in because he, he's very similar to Warhol in mannerisms and whole approach to things. So that's in the pipeline to come. Now, speaking of surreal stuff... <laughs> Bizarre news of the week is that... A melon. Oh, sorry, not that bizarre. Is that Blazing Saddles is getting remade. No, no, I'm calling it now. It'll never nope. happen. It's, it's happening. It's getting remade as a cartoon called Blazing Samurai. And it's okay. a line animation, animation are developing the film 
which trans transplants the film to the samurai era with animals. And it's a dog named Hank wants to be a samurai and is assigned to the role of protective of a town, which is populated only with cats. So obviously they hate him and he has to prove himself to them. Mel Brooks is lending a voice. Michael Cera okay. is in there. Sam Jackson, Ricky Gervais, George Takai, Michelle Yeoh, Jaimon Hounsou. Great names, Blazing Saddles, and as an animated samurai movie with dogs. Right, I'm, I'm holding judgment. <laughs> you know me. I never want to. I never want to slay anything. I'm always cautious. Uh, I've been bitten. I've there's things that I didn't think I was going to like, and then come across this blow me away. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm not optimistic. There's a deep sense of pessimism, but I'm going to hold it in and see what it looks like. First. Obviously, with it being um, moving to animation, obviously going for the family approach, there'll be a lot of aspects of Blazing Saddles that won't be translated across. There was one line in particular I, I don't think it's going to make. On the subject of those uh, more controversial aspects of Blazing Saddles, any streaming versions of Blazing Saddles now have a similar disclaimer to things like Gone with the Wind. Really? It's uh, It's been tagged on now that this is reflective of the times that it was made in and it's not meant to offend. It's meant to... It's meant to draw attention to these issues in society because mel brooks was great at actually tackling things head on and blazer saddles is a great example of confronting racism head on with racist terminologies but they've added a disclaimer on there just in case people get the wrong message from the film there will be somebody who will get the wrong message of the film uh remakes again and three men and a baby is getting a disney plus remake yeah i heard this with um the world's worst looking guy in it <laughs> zach efron now, this is Zac Efron's uh, return to Disney because he kind of started his career with Disney. He did. And now he's returned. He, he always said that he, he had no intention to ever going back to Disney, but he has now with Three Men and a Baby. The original film, as we know, was directed by Leonard Nimoy, starred Tom Selleck, Steve Guttenberg and Ted Danson. And they were three bachelors who find and care for an infant uh, while trying to find out who the mother was. How this cute tale will translate in this day and age where you can actually throw out a random picture on social media asking for help to find <laughs> someone. And within an hour, you have the name, address, phone number, and cup size. I don't know. But it's it's going straight to Disney+. Plus. They're doing a lot of their remakes now going straight to Disney+, Plus because they've got a bought-in audience, and they want to keep those subscriber bases going. It's all this like having a new, th a big release each month on Disney+, Plus to convince people to keep that subscription going. It's funny you should say that, because I, I just realised over the last two weeks that I've not moved to Disney Plus to see anything. Last thing I watched was Hamilton. There's not been a reason to go back. There's a couple of things I still want to watch, but me, neither me or the kid have, have thought, ah, Disney Plus. Yeah. I think we're just waiting for The Mandalorian to come back oh, on the Marvel show. Well, every, I think everyone's waiting for The Mandalorian to come back. That's That can't be too far away. And let's wrap up with a, a small bit of news for Marvel. And Captain Marvel 2 now has a director. Yes, I noticed this, and it's good to see uh, some movement within the Marvel uh, universe at the moment because everything feels as though it's, been, it's on hold. It's, everything's in stasis. Uh, Nia DaCosta, who is the director of the upcoming Candyman reboot, uh, she's now been put in place in there, taking over from Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who helmed the first film. Captain Marvel was okay. It wasn't. It yeah. wasn't the best Marvel film. It wasn't the worst. It was just an average film. It was an introductory film. I thought that Brie Larson is good in the role. I just feel that the character wasn't defined enough. Yeah, I, I, everything you're saying, I'm agreeing with you. But I'm excited for the because I I know from the comics what this character is capable of and how what they can do with this character and other side characters they can bring in. I'm excited to see what they do with the second one of this. The same way that I'm excited to see what happens with Doctor Strange too. That the first films 
are setting the tone, they're setting the pace, they're introducing the characters and the world. The second ones is where they can really start to shine, stretch it out, branch it off. And apparently Captain Marvel is going to be one of the influential characters on the next few phases. She's going to be the linchpin that, you know, Cap and Iron Man were in the last few phases. Captain Marvel, for me, just felt too safe. Yeah. It, in a way that Wonder Woman wasn't. Yeah. It, 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 played, it played to formula. It didn't really dirt anything. Um, yeah, my biggest problem with it is that her powers weren't defined enough and she was a deus ex machina. Yeah. Uh, but she was great with this whole aspect of playing this whole aspect of not knowing who she was and learning her past. She's a marvellous actress and a load of people like dismiss her and just get upset because how dare you have a powerful female on screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Usually you find that the people who hate Captain Marvel and things like that for having powerful females on screen also have Alien and Aliens listed in their top 10 films of all time. Hypocrites. <laughs> <laughs> but on that hypocritical note... That is the news. Okay, if you're a fan of the show and, and you're listening, it will uh, please us greatly if you could uh, hit that subscribe button. Um, we always want to keep boosting up our, our listenership. It gives us the opportunity to do more. If you uh, already subscribed, then please leave a review and why not just get your friends involved? You can have like your own little, um, you know, <laughs> social distancing film file. Like, what am I going to say that's going to make the final edit? <laughs> or not, as the case may be. You can also follow us on Twitter at Filmfile UK. And uh, you can check out both of our Instagrams because we always put up something uh, just for our Instagram followers. But please stay with us. Help us build the brand, and uh, we thank you anyway for joining us. We enjoy doing it, and uh, we hope you enjoy listening. Year one is over. Okay. Well, I guess we're officially into season two now, aren't we? We are into season two. We should do. Uh, we should do one of those episodes where uh, we'll do <laughs> previously like a, on a film file. <laughs> previously on film file, and we just made it up of stock footage from from previous episodes, or, ju- but, or um, just all the outtakes. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of those. Okay, so as you know, um, during this lockdown period, Andy has had the opportunity to go back and look at some of the films that he has, for some strange reason, none that we can fathom, and we had scientists working on it, he has missed. Uh, and what surprised me was the film that I set uh, for Andy to watch for the last week is a film that uh, Andy's not seen, which is Oliver Stone's Wall Street. Public's out there throwing darts at a board, sport. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. You're not as smart as I thought you were, buddy boy. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. Sheep get slaughtered. I've been in this business since 69. Most of these Harvard MBA types, they don't add up to dog shit. Give me guys that are poor, smart, and hungry, and no feelings. You win a few, you lose a few, but you keep on fighting. And if you need a friend, get a dog. It's trench warfare out there, pal. Hey, Georgie. How Andy, you missed this, I don't know. Came out in 1987, might have something to do with it. You were just a mere 
it sounds like I'm doing your life story. <laughs> you, you were just a, um, he was just a mere boy at this point, still looking for his way in the world. I'd have been 14 in 87. So kind of maybe Wall Street wasn't the film that you'd have been budding to see. But uh, when it came out, and I do remember, this was almost created a language within the world and, and many terms that came out of this film uh, seeped themselves into almost part of part of film legacy. Directed and co-written by Oliver Stone, starred Michael Douglas, Charlie Sheen, Daryl Hannah. Tells the story of Bud Fox, played by Charlie Sheen, a young stockbroker who becomes involved with Gordon DeGecko, a wealthy, unscrupulous corporate raider. So this followed on from his success of Platoon, and, and the 80s really were Oliver Stone's era. Andy, what have you made of this film? Most importantly, how has it, uh, how has it lasted? Has it dated? Um, does it still feel fresh in, in the world that we live in? Uh, and more, most importantly, did you enjoy it? Uh, whilst, look, with the aspect of does it stand up, whilst the look and the yuppie aspects of the film kind of grounds it in the era, the tale itself still does work today, and the film does stand up really well. I mean, we still live in an era of Wall Street traders and manipulators, con men crippling companies and risking the economic crisis for their own gain. You know, so it's it's a tale that the life's lessons that were on, on show in that film have not been learned, and people are still acting in that way. So, yeah, it does stand up, and I was I was very impressed with it. Because I was expecting to watch it and just be like, oh, corny, cheesy, corny, cheesy, and not quite getting it. But I was very quickly drawn into the whole tale. And it does have issues. Yeah, if I was going to pick one particular issue, it's the fact that if you have no knowledge of how the stock market works at all, it's very tough to actually figure out what the heck is going on for the first two thirds of the film. You can't understand what's good or bad about the actions of Gecko. You don't quite understand it if you don't have any basic knowledge. Uh, but this is a problem that any film that looks at the stock markets and trading suffers with. Even you know, films such as Wolf of Wall Street and The Big Short struggles to convey all the tradings and the deals that go on. And those films do the fourth wall breaking, talk to the camera and go, you don't need to understand this. You just need to know that this was not good kind of thing. But here there's... Yeah, that's the kind of the legacy of it, isn't it, to a degree? Yeah, for, for this film, there's no fourth wall breaking moments to explain things. So it can be hard to follow exactly what the dodgy trading is going on. But it's once you tie into the fact that it's the more personal association that uh, Bud has with the company that Gecko is working against. And that becomes the core aspect of the story because that's uh, the Blue Star Airline Company where Bud's father, Carl, works at, and he gives him the insider information that helps secure Bud alongside Gecko, and Gecko uses to try to cripple Blue Star and make some money off. Once you connect into that, you can flow with the story. The casting's great. Yeah, the casting's oh. great. I mean, this was Michael Douglas after coming off really much more heroic roles off things like uh, Romance in the Stone. You know, to play something a, a lot darker, and a, a, you know, there's there's no way now that you can't think of this this movie without thinking of of, of that look of uh, of Douglas in it, the slick back hair, the power suit, yeah. you know, all, all the quotes, uh, you know, uh, lunches for wimps, and you know, greed is good. Um, originally, the studio wanted Warren Beatty to play it. Uh, Stone initially wanted Richard Gere, but the actor passed, uh, and he went with Douglas despite being advised by. 
apparently others in Hollywood not to cast him. Mm. Uh, he's warned by everyone in Hollywood that Michael couldn't act, that he was a producer more than an actor and would spend all the time in his trailer on the phone. Uh, and again, that was proved wrong because, as we say, it, the, the two have become... Uh, it, it's, it, he is the poster boy for that generation now in that role of, of Gecko. Uh, Tom Cruise was um, originally in line to play the Bud Fox role, but they, they went to, to Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen at that point was an up-and-coming actor. He'd come off the back of uh, a platoon. Um, we, with everything that's that's happened to Charlie Sheen, we've we've kind of clouded what what the, what he was at that particular time. He was an up-and-coming star. He was in two Oscar-winning movies, and then he moved into television. And there's the, the notoriety around his private life that took over and and, and left Charlie Sheen kind of out in the cold in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, he made some odd choices of movies, and I think. I think the, the spoof comedies that he did didn't work for him and he would have been better doing more stuff like Platoon and more stuff like like uh, like Wall Street. But he's great in it. He, he's he, he's he on fine it. form in this. Absolutely fine form. But it's a support cast as well that stands out to me. John C. McGinley is always a good presence in films. And in this, Absolutely. he plays Marvin, Bud's old world, work colleague and fellow broker, who's got a personal like cat. It's like a battle between them to start with, but then there's like the jealousy sets in. And yeah, it's a good relationship that those two characters have got. You've got James Spader popping up. You've got Daryl Hannah right. in there. And most notably, you've got Martin Sheen as Bud's father. Yeah. Um, which, and that gives it that sort of, that, that personal connection to it. Yeah, the interplay between the pair works so well and you can actually feel that there's some elements of their own personal relationship being used on screen there to show this like, you know, this father-son relationship where it's kind of broken down slightly but that they, they still have a lot of respect and love for each other and still look at yeah it's a great connection and yeah the decisions cast them together with like also allowed for a pun in the hot shot series with them passing each other on the boats yeah like love you in wall street a uh, great cast really well made and like i say it's not dated that badly it's just kind of the style and the look of it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, also. the the the, the, pow the powerful suits, the big shoulders, the braces, you know, all that aspect that makes you go, yeah, this was the 80s. That's the only thing that really, like, puts it in its time. But the story is still so relevant today. And it's yeah, it's still one that we need to learn lessons from. We shouldn't have and, people and being want... able to control the finances of the planet from an office just by basically betting they are betting on the success or failure of companies and forcing failure of companies by fudging bets it is i mean as, as i said it was the archetypical portrayal of of that excessiveness of the of, of the 1980s and you know uh, with gordon gecko advocating the greed is greed for lack of a better word is good which is the, the full quote it decide it defines that particular era while as a film it, it it's a time capsule for that era, as you, as you rightly said. The notions behind it about greed, about working classes, about unions are so prolific today and even more so in, in, in the present climate. Um, that greed is good is, is, still, is still, while morally wrong, is the guiding force for, for so many. It's a film that I like. It's a film that I've never felt the need to go back to. I went back to the sequel, which didn't really need to be out there. Can't understand quite why they made it, because the world had moved on, and I don't think the film had in a way. But the, it does have a legacy to it, and, and is an important film of its time. Uh, I like it. Don't love it. 
but I see its importance. And I think it's, it's a time when Oliver Stone was a dramatic, dramatic filmmaker with a very, very powerful voice and choosing some very, very grown up issues in a way now that, that if this film was to come out, it would end up on Netflix as opposed to being a cinema film. Yeah. It's not the only one on the Oscar list that I've watched over the past week. I've had a, I've had a pretty interesting okay. week. Um, I also watched Out of Africa, which... Uh, oh, there's a film that I've, I've not gone back to. Well, I, I've got no intention of going back to it. it, it what? Uh, melodramatic trash. <laughs> it is. It's, a, it's, it's Mills and Boone in, in Africa, I was thought. I, mean, I, I thought the, Redford was, was fantastic. Yeah, the, the, cast, the cast are great. Was, was stunning in it, but it's not a film that I... It felt like a TV movie of the week. Yeah. Um, Atonement, which I was really impressed with. Which I've not seen, actually. Oh, thoroughly recommend it. should be on my list. I thoroughly recommend it. I mean, there's a Dunkirk section in that film that is about five minutes long, and it's a better Dunkirk than Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. <laughs> Okay. It's more, much more powerful in its presentation of the like the mess of Dunkirk than Nolan managed, and yeah, it, it struck, uh, it struck with me. It's a great film. It's a really good like exploration of like perception of events and how they can have bad repercussions going forward. It's a brilliant film. Well worth checking out. Uh, Midnight in Paris, which is the Woody Allen directed Owen Wilson. The last great Woody Allen film for me. Completely different film than what I was expecting it to be. Absolutely loved it. It's great. Absolutely, Absolutely. I, I, right. I, I think it is the last great Woody Allen film. And Field of Dreams, that for the first half hour, I was like, oh, what am I watching? And then, really? and then it captured me. And then it's it, beautiful. And then it Love stole it. me. And by the end of it, I was, I, was, I was in. I like it so much, Field of Dreams, that if it was, I know it's out on Netflix, I don't want to see it again because it, it holds such a special place. Yeah. I, it reminds me of a certain part of my life and I don't want to watch it again to feel as though it'll take something away from it. I, I absolutely adore Field of Dreams. I think it's a, it's a lovely film. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you something now that's not going to sort of bum you out. And you know, we we said at the top end of the program, let's find you something that, that's going to give you a little bit of joy. And I'm going to give you a choice this week on the two films that I know you've not seen. One is What's Eating Gilbert Grape with Johnny Depp, and the second one is Robert Downey Jr. in Chaplin. I'm going to leave it up to you to choose. I think they're both. There's a theme that runs through them, which are, are if you see them, you'll you'll understand what I mean. Yeah. There, there's uh, significance about about the two stars and, and where they both became afterwards from there, from from relatively not obscure, but they they weren't the dynamic forces that they are today. Um, I'm going to leave it with you, Andy. Those are your two choices. Come back and surprise okay. me next week. Have you watched Chaplin or? Are you going to watch What's Eating Gilbert Grape? Okay. I shall leave that as a surprise for the start of the next episode. So, as Andy said earlier, in a couple of weeks, we'll be back in the cinema with a review for Tenant. But in the meantime, as we've been doing over the last few weeks, we've been taking a deep dive into classic movies. We've managed to cover movies like The Matrix. We started with Highlander. Last week, we did uh, Silent Running. This week is a film that really no, needs no introduction. This is a film that I've not had to watch because I know it almost with encyclopedic knowledge. I have seen it that many times. And that is This is Spinal Tap, also known as This is Spinal Tap, a rockumentary by Martin De Berge. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. Hmm. 
This is the loudest, most explosive band in heavy metal history. This is Spinal Tap. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. The funniest movie ever made about rock and roll. He choked on vomit. Well, I can't prove whose vomit it was. The monumental classic. There was a Stone Age monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. The makeup of your audience seems to be young boys. Oh, it's a sexual thing, really. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening. No, don't have I was just pointing at it. Well, don't point. I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. The cult phenomenon. The numbers all go to 11. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. This is Spinal Tap. So This is Spinal Tap is a 1984 American mockumentary uh, co-written and directed by Rob Rayner, stars uh, Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, Harry Shearer, all names that have moved on to doing other things and you'll know from something, where they play members of a fictional uh, English heavy metal band, Spinal Tap, who are categorised as one of England's loudest bands. Uh, Rob Rayner's Marty DeBerge, uh, documentary filmmaker, follows them on their, their American tour where literally... Everything that could go wrong, goes wrong. This is a film that when I first saw it, I knew it by reputation. Didn't know a lot about it. This was in the, the hazy days. It sort of got released, not to a massive cinema release in the UK, ended up in a lot of the art house cinemas. I'd heard about it, but knew very little about it. Knew, didn't know any of the cast. I saw it at a friend's house, and we both watched it on a, on a video rental. Turned around to each other and went, have we just watched something that's real? <laughs> yep. To the point where we actually, it, the, the guys in the band, the English accents, the way that they portray musicians is, is just so spot on that for me, Spinal Tap at that point was a real band. I, I You know, the, the fine line between was it was it a, a documentary or mockumentary was, was so blurred because I, it, it was so spot on. Having worked in the music industry, having toured with bands, even retrospectively, this film captures the music industry better than almost any other film I've ever seen. I adore Spinal Tap. I think it's utterly quotable. I think it's the sort of film that you can watch time and time again and see something new in it. It's, it is, it's absolutely a perfect film. And I know I say this a lot in, in, in films, and a lot of the films that we talk about are films that I, I, I do love. But I, my love of Spinal Tap is it's it's just so true to life that it, it, it never, never, never ages for me. I love it. And I, I show people all the time. I've got more, there's in, in rehearsals with my band, a, a quote will come up almost weekly. This is a film that I, I revisit very frequently. I absolutely love this film. Uh, same as you, that I was... I knew it by reputation, and I was introduced to it because um, at school, during dinner hour, uh, we set up a film club that someone would bring a VHS in, and over a week we'd watch like half an hour at a time. And this was a film that someone brought in because we, we'd latched onto um, the comic strip presents bad news and more bad news. 
and then someone says, "There's there's another version, another thing which is very similar to that," and brought this in and watching it in half hour chunks, and we didn't want it to stop. Absolutely loved it, and from that point onwards, it became a regular rewatch, and I always sorted it out. It's just, I mean, same as you. It was like, is this a real band? And by the time that we got to watch it, which must have been about 1980, when did More Bad News come out? That was 87. So it would yeah, have been, it was around the same time. It would have been it? 87 that um, More Bad News came out, that we got to watch this. And by that point, Spinal Tap had kind of got albums out and they'd appeared on TV singing some of their stuff. So it was like, this is a real band. <laughs> I think. I don't know. And there's that blurring of reality between it that makes it work. Not, not scripted. Yeah, there was the basic storyline for each scene was like, this is going to look like, it's all about this. It's all about there's antagonism brewing because of this. And da, 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 da. And the cast were just encouraged, like, go for it. Be in character. Make up your lines. And that makes it feel like a documentary. It, does, oh, yeah. it doesn't feel polished. It doesn't feel like every bit of every bit of dialogue is perfectly structured. It feels like it's just been plucked out of thin air. And so you get, you know, ridiculous things like, you know, playing a nice melody like of, uh, you know, do, 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 lick my love pump. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it's brilliantly put together. It's it's not the first rock like music mockumentary, but it's definitely the one that's become the most significant and the most iconic and the one that has permeated public consciousness, even for people who've never watched the film. Everyone knows these go to 11. Yeah. Everyone, it, everyone knows the joke about your drummers constantly dying in mysterious gardening accidents or shaving incidents. Yeah. It's all moments that have become such a part of everyday life and everyday conversation that that's the impact that this film had. It just wove its way into society's framework mind. So the behind the scenes on this was was the driving force was Michael McKean and Christopher Guest. Um, Christopher Guest, we know, went on to to make a career out of using the mockumentary idea. Uh, films like Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show. Uh, and Michael McKean, last seen brilliant as ever in, in Better Call Saul, the first two seasons of that. Yeah. They worked with uh, Harry Shearer and Rob Rain on a TV pilot for a comedy sketch show called The TV Show which featured uh, the parody rock band then, then and always called Spinal Tap. During production of that sketch, McKeon and Guest began to improvise inventing characters that, that eventually became David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell. And, and you know, I, I've met those guys. I, I've met, should I say, I've met those kind of guys. I've met those guitarists. Uh, I, it, it just hits, no pun intended, every right chord. They look and sound like a band. Their interaction is like a band. The fact that those those guys can play as well. And yeah. it, it brought that realism to it and, and it feels real. And I think that the idea that they didn't do a spoof documentary in, in what I mean by that, the whole thing is a spoof. It feels like an actual documentary, the way that it's shot. They used a cinematographer that was a, um, a documentary cinematographer. The, the mise-en-scene and everything about it makes it feel like a, a real documentary. It's that good at, at pulling the wool over your eyes because we invest in the characters uh, and we invest in the style of it. You know, there's a lot to be said about found footage films. Uh, and, a, and a writer friend of mine said, found footage films work when they feel like found footage films, yeah. not the fact that, that, that there's too many cameras or there's too many angles. 
they work because it's it's a part of the story it's it's the reason to be and there's there's no way you could have done a spinal tap film without it being a documentary it's it's the perfect it's the perfect meld of the right material with the right subject for it to come together i mean that this film is a a film that's loved by i mean you've already hinted at it that those who work within the music industry and bands recognize elements of themselves in there or elements of people who they bumped into and it's so widely regarded with it like you know you've, you've got you just have to look at bands like anvil who are like a genuine real life spinal tap to yeah. see how real spinal tap actually is because anyone who's not seen the anvil movie you know they have the same kind of fallout crazy ideas gig gigs with only about five people turning up and bizarre publicity so this kind of thing does exist and that's why it works so well so much deleted material from making this film that on the dvd and blu-ray releases there's actual second film on there made up of the deleted scenes yeah there's there's enough material isn't there for a, for almost an hour and a half of a of, a, of another film of, you know quite easily have been put together as a as a sequel and it's the fact that the band keeps showing up from time to time even today they look like, you know, the cast loved to parade out those characters. Yeah, they released a new album about 12 years ago now. Yeah. Um, they even, on the DVD release, provided a hilarious commentary of over the film and the deleted scenes movie in character, where they are critical about how Marty DeBerge had portrayed them in yes. Bad Light. Yes. Absolutely. It makes watching the film again with that commentary on a whole new experience. It's a brilliant approach to filmmaking. And of course, if you watch the DVD version, that's the whole Spinal Tap experience as well. You oh, rem- man. <laughs> you reminded me that it starts with a black screen with the guys doing the commentary over it in character. And then the logo comes in from above overhead, similar to like the, you know, the Star Destroyer at the start of Star Wars, a big looming thing. And like the talk, you talk about like, oh, wow, epic. And then it just disappears into the far distance so you can hardly see it. Yeah. And they're like, no, that's too far. <laughs> yeah. it, everything about it is, is just, you can feel the love of the characters. It's, there's so many ways to just keep on enjoying the tap. Brilliant from start to finish. Bit of trivia. Do you know where the name Marty DeBerge came from? I'm assuming it's based on Martin Scorsese. It's Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma and Steven Spielberg mashed together. Well, of course, I mean, they used the idea of, you know, of Martin Scorsese because he made the documentary The Last Wars, yep. which was an inspiration for the film. There was also the, the Bob Dylan documentary, Don't Look Back. The incident where Tap become lost in backstage <laughs> trying to find a stage. Yep. That was inspired by a video of, uh, of Tom Petty at a, a concert in Germany. You know, there was all the things like the Judas Priest and Uriah Heep and all this, the stories of excess. And as a quick aside, the getting lost, finding a stage once happened to me. <laughs> so I, I, it was just the most incredible. You know, we went down to the stage to a dressing room. Rock and roll. Got to, got to the stage and the, the door to the, st- to the backstage area was locked. And we had to go all the way around back so we didn't have to walk through the venue. It was there's so, so much of it. And as you said, everything about it has become a, a descriptive term. It's just, it's, it's just perfect. There's not many films that you can say are perfect. Spinal Tap is is is, is just up there with with not only the, one of the funniest comedies of all time, but one of the best films ever made. I mean, the the songs themselves. If the songs weren't made to seem so serious, even though the lyrics are really bizarre, 
it would have been jarring and make it make it not feel real. It's the fact that the riffs are amazing. The the cast can play and they play pretty good. It's just that when you really pay attention to it, like on, on the first time around, you don't pick up on all the lyrics, but the second time around onwards, you start to pick up, you know, my baby fits me like a flesh tuxedo or one of the sink with a pink torpedo. Stonehenge, nobody knows where they came from. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> and tonight I'm going to rock you with it's you're too young and I'm too well hung. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, but they're all perfectly used to demonstrate the ridiculousness of some rock songs from like the 70s and 80s era. That the art, it parodies it in such a brilliantly loving way that it feels, it feels real. And even when you watch it today, you still think, that this could have been a band. <laughs> just, just one kind of uh, closing point on it. Do you remember that the Spinal Tap played at the Freddie Mercury um, Queen tribute concert? Yes. <laughs> um, some friends, some friends of mine were on uh, on that bill. I'm not going to start the neck drop at this point, but they said backstage that that Spinal Tap stayed in character <laughs> all the way through in the dressing room, in going up on stage, were always always in character, and that makes me love them <laughs> a little bit more. Spinal Type is, is our deep dive. What a fantastic Marvellous film. Such a legacy as well. I mean, you've already mentioned Christopher Guest with his mock documentary approach because he's done A Mighty Wind for folk music. He's done Pet Shows right. with Best in Show and For Your Consideration for Movie Award Process. But there's also been like, you know, a look at rap industry with CB4 and Fear of a Black Hat taking the same kind of approach. And most recently, and if anyone's still not watched this, track down pop star Never Stop Never Stopping. I, I've not seen it. I've, I've heard good things about it. It is it is the perfect spiritual companion to Spinal Tap because it takes like a modern day pop idol kind of approach to the whole documentary feel. And it's well worth checking out. I'd also turn your attention to uh, All You Need Is Cash, the, the Ruffles story. I'll, I'll rewatch that this week. Um, yeah, I, I saw that recently. It's a, again. It's, a, it's a brilliant mockumentary spoof in the Beatles. It captures everything perfectly. It's really on on the nose with a few things, and I know that um, the Beatles generally enjoyed it, but they all have their own little points. Where it's like, oh, you went a bit far there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> John Lennon apparently, um, he was sent a copy of All You Need Is Cash to review it and say what what he thought of it, and he refused to return it because he loved it so much. <laughs> But he did, he and of did. course, George Harrison's in it. Yep, George Harrison pops up because he was um, also co-financed it. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Spinal Tap, absolutely brilliant. It, what if you've not watched it? Watch it and then go on IMDb and rate it up to eleven. You, you've not seen the film. That makes no sense to you whatsoever. <laughs> Shame on you. Okay, that's it for uh, uh, another show. But before we go, every week, Andy and I always have our our list over the last week of things that we watched, read. Um, thoroughly enjoyed and we call it our neat thing Andy, do you have a neat thing of course i've got a neat thing i've oh, got loads i'm always at the last minute going what's my neat thing what's my neat thing my neat thing this week is a game that was released 10 days ago called fall guys ultimate knockout which is available on playstation 4 and on steam on playstation 4 we got it as part of the free package which was quite good for a brand new brand new game to get released as part of the free package and it's a game that's inspired by shows such as Takeshi's Castle and It's a Knockout. And you play an amorphous blob-like person with arms and legs in a Battle Royale-style knockout tournament of obstacle courses, giant football matches, 
egg collections, team-based or solo outings until one winner stands tall. It's immense fun and it's evidence that far few people know, know how seesaws work because there's a whole level which is about getting from <laughs> one end to the other via seesaws and it's chaos. If you can get ahead of the pack, you can get to the end in no time. But if you're stuck in the middle of the pack, you're, you're sliding off seesaws left, right and centre. The only thing that it misses is a Stuart Hall voiceover and laughing going on. It's immense fun. It's one of those games that you don't care if you don't win because you're just enjoying the complete nonsense of running along. You get people getting to the finish line and not crossing the finish line, turning around and doing mocking poses and like taunting everyone else before like the countdown timer is about to go off and then they jump through the finish line. You also get people who, as you're about to jump across the finish line, they'll grab you and stop you from going as someone else passes before you. Brilliant fun. Really good community on there. Absolute joy. And just remind me of the name again. Fall Guys Ultimate Knockout. Fall Guys. Okay, mine has, um, has just come to an end. It's the Perry Mason revival that's been showing on Sky Atlantic, which is a HBO series in the US. Um, they've done it as basically as Perry Mason year one, for those who know your comic references. So it's a period drama set in the 1930s, uh, based on the character created by Eric Stanley Gardner. There was a very successful TV series which ran for years and years. Then we starred Raymond Burr, which was brought back uh, a couple of years just before his death. A hugely successful character, and probably not as much well-known in this country, but Perry Mason was one of those super lawyers where every week he would sort of investigate and, and get someone off, off the case, discover that they were innocent. This is a really gritty version of it. Uh, it's kind of the origin story of Perry Mason, set in 1932 Los Angeles, uh, just prospering after the uh, coming after the Great Depression. Uh, down and out private investigator played by Matthew Reese, who's absolutely brilliant in the part. Um, he's struggling with the trauma of the Great War after being divorced. He's hired by a sensational child kidnapping trial. And its consequential basically means that he ends up becoming the lawyer for the case. It's been a great series, one of those which you can really call a slow burn. I've yet to watch the last episode, which, which aired just the other night, and I'm just kind of holding out because I want to watch it and digest it. Thoroughly enjoyed it over the last eight weeks. It's felt like each episode is, is not just an episodic TV. It felt like a chapter in a book that, that where it ends is the perfect point for you to want to read the next chapter. It was originally going to star uh, Robert Downey Jr., who had to drop out of it. It was going to be written by uh, Nick Pozzolati, who dropped out of it to do uh, the third season of True Detective. But it just has that it just has that incredible life for detail of, of, the, of the period. It's grittier than your, your grandfather's Perry Mason. And it's just been a really enjoyable eight weeks, and it's not outstayed its welcome. Uh, Perry Mason, for me, that has been my neat thing. And I'm looking forward to watching the last episode because I want to see how it ends. And that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with uh, more news, more updates. Um, anything planned, Andy? Or are you just getting ready to open cinemas again? Get, getting ready to open cinemas and in my downtime. I've, I've got films to work through. And just remember, Andy, it's such a fine line between stupid and clever.